Welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg, joined by Cameron McCormick. And this episode is a little bit different, a slight diversion from our typical format where we are spending time chatting, interviewing a coach or a player or some other expert within the domain of high performance. And I think we're motivated to do that because in those conversations, there are always a lot of, obviously we we say really great nuggets that come out of those conversations and we just want the opportunity to dig in. And we've received feedback from listeners that it would be nice if we could dig into those a little bit. Sure. It's particularly where a subject matter might come up in conversation that eh, for some, it may be esoteric and they need more elaboration or clarity as to what it actually is. So that's exploring the edge, isn't it? Right. And it, it gives us an opportunity to coach. I mean, that was one of the motivations behind doing this was that we could reach a broader audience than what we can do one-to-one when we're together with with the clients of Altus. So we're, we're kind of getting our coaching hats on and, and what are the we'll call exploring the edge episodes. And our first one where the edge that we will explore is the mastery mindset. When you hear the word mastery, what does that mean to you, Cam? It means many things, probably best conveyed in a story. And it's a story that comes from the first time that I was at the Masters, not as a coach, but as a spectator. It was in 2009, and uh, I think as any person would, if they were attending the Masters for the first time, you enter through the, the gates and you have wide-eyed wonder and not knowing what's, uh, what's going to come. So many stories are told about how the golf course, the experience of the Masters is totally different when you're on site versus just seeing it through the lens of uh, a camera on TV. And so I get there very, very early on a Tuesday morning and I go through the main gate and uh, I wanted to go straight to the first tee, which I did and uh, picked up a practice round group. And that practice round group represented 15 major champions or 15 major championships. And the group was comprised of Gary Player, who would happen to be playing his last Masters as a competitor, Ernie Els, and Retief Goosen. And I followed the group for the entire first nine, taking in all I could as both like a fan of golf, but as much a fan of golf as an instructor, a relatively new instructor, only having been a coach for nine years, which may seem like a long time, but when you compare that against where we're at now and where many of us, or many of those who are older coaches than us, they've got 30, 40, 50 years under their belt. Following around that entire uh, first nine, and something happened on number seven, where uh, Gary and Ernie Els stop in the middle of Seven Fairway, just beyond where the crosswalk was, and I'm walking across the crosswalk. And a conversation took place, and that conversation was something that occurred to me as strange. It was Ernie Els looking down at Gary Player, given the height difference, and Gary looking up, and both of them kind of stepping back and making these rehearsal swings. This is having a conversation about what it was that they were working on in their games. Couldn't tell whether it was Ernie giving Gary a lesson or Gary giving Ernie a lesson, or just bouncing ideas off each other, as oftentimes happens. And I carried that with me for the rest of the day. I dropped those guys off. They continued to play the entire 18 and I went back to the range and uh, watched a variety of other players. About three hours after that, uh, I had a client, a member at the club that I was at, that was um, that offered to give me a tour of the clubhouse. And uh, I'm going through the grand tour of all the important rooms. And the tour culminated in walking the staircase to the second floor where the entrance to the champion's locker room is. And uh, he points to where that door is. And of course, the policy uh, tournament weeks, and I think most or all weeks, is strictly no admittance to the champion's locker room unless you're accompanied by a past champion, of which my 18 handicap member client certainly was not. (laughs) So I expected that to be the end of the tour and, and off I'd go back to the golf course. But simultaneously, as he pointed to the door, out walks Gary Player. And he walks right up to my client, uh, my friend, and an introduction is made. And following that introduction was some general conversation. And then I was so curious and had the question just wanting to, to leap out of me that I, uh, I landed. I said, Mr. Player, I followed you for the entire first nine there. And I couldn't help but notice what happened on number seven, where it clearly looked like you were giving Mr. Els a lesson. I sure as heck wasn't going to tell Gary Player that he was getting a lesson or ask Gary Player if he was getting a lesson from Ernie Els. And uh, I remember his response like it was, uh, it was yesterday. And uh, he says to me, in my 63 years as a professional, I've won 165 tournaments on six continents over those six decades. 
I've worked my tail off to, the, to master this game. Every tournament I won was with a different swing, a different feel. Sure, there was some consistency over time, but overall my warm-up was always about finding my swing for that day. Today I didn't find it in warm-up, I was still trying to find it when you witnessed what you witnessed. And after playing in more golf tournaments than any other human and hitting more golf balls than any other human, what I can most positively tell you is this. You never own it, you're just renting it. And the rent is due every day. So that was my first interaction and my last interaction with Gary Player. And in the years since... That's a good South African accent. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) In the years since, I've come to refine Mr. Player's message to represent kind of a foundational um, principle or or a North Star, if you will. And that's mastery is not a destination, but rather an operating system that guides your journey. And if we look forward without wonder at when we might arrive, then we create our own, own positive movement. It's not a a glass half full nor a glass half empty kind of philosophy, but moreover, how can I continue to fill up that glass? And uh, when I speak around the world to coach audience or player audiences, I think about the Japanese word, they have a word for it. It's called Kaizen. And it's the process of continual improvement where we find those opportunities for incremental gains every day to improve not only who we are, but what we're capable of achieving. So that's what comes to mind along with a story of what I think about as it relates to the word mastery. Yeah. And I think it's an amazing illustration, especially when you have someone like Gary player, who's been there for a long time. I I know that I, my story about mastery is similar and early on being around Chuck cook, like early on in my coaching career where this guy had coached major champions. And I, I don't know how old he was at the time, but I don't know that many people are pursuing knowledge with like this, a real zest, like a really, really curious still at that stage of his career. And that mirrors all the conversations that we have with all the players that we talk to too. So that's why we say that this is an edge, this mastery mindset, this desire to continually improve every single day. But what we want to do is we want to offer some actionable, some, well, here's, here's what you need to do because we're saying this is important and we want to explore it further. But I think we also have to discuss on the front end, how that's scaffolded by and reinforced by like real passion and purpose, right? So can you pursue something with that kind of passion or like just this, this desire to continually work hard and improve in the absence of, well, I really love to do this. And and we can kind of get into mastery versus ego orientation a little bit from our conversation with Gio, Mm -hmm. but can we speak a little bit to the inclination piece or can you speak to the inclination piece that, that is necessary for that kind of mastery mindset? Yeah, let's go back real quick to your comment on Chuck because I think it's it represents a really good another good example that that attitude is both kind of an identity but also an action plan. It's I guess you could say it's part philosophy and part action plan. It's the person you are, which would be foundational to your identity that you can cultivate, and it's also how you approach your development organizing, like Chuck did. His efforts for maximum effect, and it drives his or drove his attitude to. I guess, consume and continue to fill up his knowledge buckets. And that's what I guess Gary Player was also talking about when he told me that story of his uh, 63 years as a professional. But I think the the piece that so often comes up in conversations is how is it relevant? And um, maybe even more foundational of that is how do I identify what it is that I'm going to pursue in terms of mastery? So from from a big umbrella, 10,000 foot perspective would be to say it's not necessarily a direction of orientation towards just one thing. It's an overarching philosophy towards how you would run your life. But yes, there are kind of a nuanced or granular approach where you may have identified that the fact that you want to excel at this one given uh, skill or aspect. And another Japanese word comes to mind is otaku. And the way they would define, the Japanese would define otaku is uh, used as a term for people with obsessive interests. Now, Gio, certainly in our podcast with him, which you haven't, if you have not uh, listened to it, then certainly go back and and um, and give it a pass. It's one of the best that we've done. Nonetheless, Gio said in a recent episode of the podcast that obsession may not necessarily be the right word. Possibly a better term could be immersion. When you're now so ate up, as they say in Texas here, with something that it is a majority of your existence emerging, as Gio said again, of avocation and vocation. It's what you like to do, but it's also something you want to do for a really, really long time because you have this desire to get good, desire to be the best version of yourself, and that's growing over time.
So immersion, and let's use golf as an example, because I love, that's definitely how I would describe all the high performers that we spoke to is that they are immersed in this process of getting better at, or they certainly have at one time and been very immersed in that. As using golf as an example, what do you think immersion looks like? And, and the reason why I'm asking this is because I want to paint a picture of the necessary amount of effort that these great players put in. And so I, I had a professional client, a very new professional client um, that I've seen si since he was in college. And now he's become pro and he's playing, he's made his first pro check. And the conversation that we had was about some other activities that because he no longer has the time constraints of school that need to be happening to support his continued development. And then it, we got into the conversation of immersion is like, this has to be, this is your job now. This has to be 24 seven, what you do. And so can you maybe for the listener, describe a little bit, paint a picture of what a day in the life of someone who's immersed in getting good at golf, a professional golfer who's pursuing that with all that they have in them looks like and what it should look like. If, if we're, if we're asking people to, to master something, you have to be immersed in that. With no constraint on time, that person that is immersed or as, the, as Otaku would uh, describe it, obsessed with that pursuit of getting better at whatever it is, but in this case, golf uh, would be waking hours whether it be thinking or doing both as they relate to golf. It could be a, a passively uh, reading books. It could be passively visualizing. It could be passively sitting down and strategizing, uh, preparing to perform in advance of going to an event. Or it could be the sweat equity, the physical stuff that uh, they may be doing to drive skills. So I think it's a really poor way to look at development and mastery mindset to say that I'm mastery driven or I'm, I'm one that can think that I'm on this journey to mastery because I'm spending eight to 10 hours a day. The eight to 10 hours a day is almost lost for the mastery oriented athlete. It's just something that you can add to at the end of the day, but it's not necessarily something they set forth with an objective to say, unless I get my requisite time in every day. So whether that's 60, 70 or 80 hours a week, for some, it might be a few more than that, then they haven't checked the box on mastery. I don't think that's fair. Moreover, they take this mindset of, I'm going to work until I see the noticeable gains that I should be able to pick up on each day to leave being able to answer the question of, did I get better today? Well, yes. And then answer that sub question, which is, well, how? And they can describe it to themselves. Now, as I say that, there's also the danger of that sometimes those gains are, are hard to uh, pinpoint on a day-to-day right. -day basis. There's a patience piece yeah, there. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And Geo pointed to the article, mundanity, or so, um, mundanity of excellence that each day looks so similar to the next. And when do we uh, look in the mirror and, uh, oh, sorry, when can we look in the mirror and actually reflect on or know that we have improved because the gains are marginal sometimes on those, on those days and kind of goes back on the point that I just made. Sometimes there is, it's enough. Sometimes it is enough to say that I put in the eight hours. And I did the things that I know over time are going to grow into uh, being a half stroke better here or there. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Well, I think that there's like a mix of patience and optimism there. We have an interesting conversation that can be had on patience when you're looking at mastering something over a long period of time is because we had Bryson in our conversation tell us that he wasn't a fan of patience. Like most are not. Yeah. And most of these high performers have, have said similar things. But I think that there's also an optimism piece of that. It's like, if I put this time in. More I, if I do these things. If I do these things, right. Mm -hmm. if, if I do these things, then it's going to, it's going to happen. I'm optimistic that sure. it's going to happen. And maybe on a macro sense, there is some patience embedded in, into that. Mm -hmm. And on the micro is probably yeah, much good way, more. Good way to put it. On the, macro, on the macro sense, if it takes two years to get to the, the place that they feel like they want to get to, or if it takes 10 years, or if it takes 20 years, that's the perspective of Gary Player. Look, uh, I'm not owning it. I'm just renting and the renters do every day. I'm going to do the work such that I know that in 10 years time, there's going to be some sort of yield. There's going to be some sort of gain. Uh, but the micro sense is there's a necessary impatience. Uh, there's, a, there's a demand that someone needs to place in themselves to say, okay, man, it took X six months to develop this skill. And that's their experience. I'm going to develop it in one. Yeah. So 
we are painting a picture of mastery. I think we've, we've dug in investigated enough to say, Hey, this is what it looks like. And mm-hmm. it looks like a lot of hard work, but I think that one piece that we haven't dug into enough is that that has to be, to be sustainable. That hard work has to be driven by like curiosity, like this enthusiasm, this excitement, like that comes from your, just, just naturally I'm inclined to pursue this. Mm-hmm. And so if, if we're talking to someone that's listening and maybe doesn't have that, like, are there, is it just, you have it or you don't, or if you don't have it, you're doing the wrong thing and maybe go play basketball or what happens if I don't have, if I'm having a hard time finding that enthusiasm, that excitement, that enthusiasm will ebb and flow. There's certainly, uh, enthusiasm is cyclical, but I think you go back to asking yourself a series of questions is what do you like to do and why, or what, other attitudes, what other identities can you resonate with? Is that uh, resonating with the stories that you see uh, maybe in advance of the Olympic Games of players that work their entire life to get to that one event who've visualized hundreds of thousands of times of being on that stage, the hard work required in order to have the chance to demonstrate that you're great at something what what do you stand for and why? What do you like doing? And, and it clearly, when you're talking with youth athletes, you're talking about sampling and experimenting and dipping their toes into many different experience buckets to try and identify what it is that you want to get good at. So you're kind of broadening your experiential. Yeah, you're broadening your, your experiences before you start to channel. So you're going wide before you go deep. But I think the fact of the matter goes back to my first statement. That enthusiasm is is very, very cyclical. But the best ride through that cycle of enthusiasm because they know the macro, the long run, the long term. Um, they're playing that long game. That's a piece that is our job as coaches or would be a job of parents to really influence because, you know, we have the ability that as we are, we see enough clients to where we can kind of monitor and have a feel for that ebb and flow of enthusiasm towards certain activities. And so then it's our job to, to provide challenge and to kind of point, point an athlete towards the right kind of motivations behind doing something. Mm -hmm. And then, so it's not just either you have it or not. Yeah, it's it's one of the vital signs that we as professionals need to be able to and, and do pick up on. Right. It's the enthusiasm, the 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 excitement in conversation, it's the purpose-driven pursuit that a person is um, injecting into. I'm going to stop you there for a second because it remind me of a piece that I know that remembering back to our presentation in China on the to the parents that you said mm-hmm. that purpose was purpose is the engine that drives all elite performance. Purpose is an underlying desire to get good. So that would be kind of that umbrella, that macro uh, mastery mindset. This is what I want to do, and I don't care how it's how long it's going to take me. And that certainly is the overarching operating system that helps a person ride through the cyclical enthusiasm, the cyclical mundanity every day, looking the same. Which, in many cases, particularly for youth and adolescent athletes, can turn into complacency, can't it? Yeah, I think that. We also have to look at what it looks like when you're not driven by this mastery mindset, because that's another thing that we're tuned into when we see a client and it, and it doesn't look the right way. So well, let me toss it to you. What's an- antithetical to the mastery mindset then? Ego orientation. So being driven by extrinsic rewards rather than having that kind of internal fire that says, man, I just love this so much. I just want to continue to get better. I'm, I'm really like, I had quotes what, that I wrote down here that I'll, I'll read uh, Ben Hogan quote, I don't like the glamour. I just like the game. Jack Nicholas quote, I had no visions in my head of fans and trophies. Basically I sought three things from the game to improve at it, to compete at it and to win at it. Mm-hmm. And so that's that internal fire, that, that purpose that we spoke to. So the opposite of that would be, Extrinsic. I, I'm trying to beat someone else. Yeah. I want to show everybody how good I am at this. And, and that's the, we talked about the, all the hard work, all the time in the saddle that's required. And it's really, really hard to keep it up if those are the things that you're chasing after or even protecting the perception that people have of you, right? And mm-hmm. ego, and identity. Uh, yeah. And, and that's when Gio spoke of that 
about how things get really hard once you start playing professionally because you have all these ex- external rewards that for a lot of players that for their entire career have had this mastery mindset. Now it becomes, I got to make sure I get some official world golf ranking points out of this, mm-hmm. or I want to maintain my status here, or I want to make sure that like, there's all these other things. So as speculative as it may be, since we're not close to this as a more recent example than Ben Hogan and Jack Nicholas, speak to Rory this year and speak to the renewed attitude that he came out with at the start of the year. Yeah. I mean, I, I can only, I don't know enough about it and maybe, you know, more because you've had conversations with Ryan, but I know that, that Rory had found the obstacles away, which, uh, back what episode like 10, we, we recorded a, with Ryan Holiday, with the, Ryan the author, Holiday, of. The author. And yeah, so he found that book. And I think a big part of that book for athletes that read it is the perspective piece. Cause there's kind of three pillars of that book, right? There's the action perception and will are mm-hmm. kind of the three pillars there. And the perception is switching perceptions. And I think that's what we're talking about is making sure that you're switching your perspective to see the situations that you encounter in competitive golf from a, a point of mastery of this is part of the process. I'm driven to continue to fight through these obstacles and shrug off the failures and learn from them rather than if I fail at the masters, this defines me and I'm protecting against that. Or I'm, I'm trying to keep the perception that I'm a world cast play- player because of, I like all the rewards that come from it. Mm-hmm. I, I, and again, that's purely speculative. Sure, but sure. That's my guess. But I'm asking you to do that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah how'd I do? Yeah. I think, <laughs> I think you did good. Yeah. So we've explored what a mastery mindset is, what mastery means to you or I and many other examples there. We've explored, explored why it's important, but how is it developed? Like if, if we're going to say we want to grow more of this, what is it that we need to feed our system to develop more of it? I think that it's imperative. It's absolutely necessary that when someone walks into our office that we're going to work with, that we require that they walk in with a beginner's mind. Mm-hmm. I think that when we see players that to the caliber that we see, it's easy to, because they've had all this success to come in as an expert. And when you come in with that, there's some, there's a lot of sacred cows as we would call them things yeah. that here's the way that I do things. Expand on beginner's mind and sacred cow. Okay. Beginner's mindset is a openness to a curiosity. There's almost beginner's mind, meaning like inferiority. Like when my son who's five years old listens to me, it's like this, my dad knows everything. Like, yeah, he's I'm, speaking the gospel. Exactly. Whatever he <laughs> Every says. Every word is spitfire. <laughs> I learn stuff all the time. Like, and really he's like a sponge, right? And that's a beginner's mind. That's what that means right there. As opposed to when there's some superiority, some smugness. Like I think that anyone that gets into is really, really at risk. Every expert in the world, no matter what they're an expert at, is really, really at risk of that smugness and superiority that comes with their success because it's like, I have all the answers. And so they really close themselves off to new ideas mm-hmm. and they immediately dismiss them as, well, I've never heard of that. And that doesn't sound right. That can't be right. And so you, you end up, you lose that beginner's mind, right? Mm-hmm. You lose that mastery mindset that it's you're fat- continuing. We'll pick that up in, in just a second, but it's fascinating you say that I'm just finishing this book range by David Epstein, who hopefully we'll have on the podcast here, uh, here very soon and littered throughout range is the pitfalls of narrow focus, the pitfalls of living in a silo, which is what you're alluding to when you're describing the experience of an expert that does not bring to the table through this mastery mindset, the uh, Shushin, the beginner's mind, as they would say in Zen Buddhism. A lot of Japanese. Yeah, yeah. I'm okay. studying it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I think that overall, it's just, if we're going to grow it, if we're going to, to try to influence a mastery mindset, if someone listening and says, okay, you said this is important. I think that it has to start from this place of real openness. Mm-hmm. I'm open to some new ideas and I'm, I'm going to examine them. I mean, I, I don't think it's like a naive openness to where I'm just going to listen to anything and everything. Mm-hmm. It's, it's still having that critical eye. Of, Your filter's still on. Exactly. The filter's still there, but it's not like, okay, I'm, I'm going to listen to this. I'm going to see if this is something that I'm, that might be helpful to me, or rather if I can kind of flip this on its head, if I can kind of turn it into something that, that more matches my, my viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, the, yeah. the openness is where I would It's interesting from. you say that because, you know, spending time as you have, and I do on the professional tour ranges, the conversations that you overhear, there's so much information that's like cross-pollinated, right. cross-ranged, like, what are you working on? And, oh, really? Why are you working on that? And there's almost never 
um, a combative conversation going on. It's intrigue, it's curiosity, and almost like people are onboarding this information and filtering it through in real time and vetting it. So almost every person, I think the expression I heard many, many years back was uh, tour rangers, whether it's a training aid or whether it's a new idea, these tour players, the best of the best, they treat ideas and training aids like ants do sugar, where they all flock to them and they vet them for their own purpose and figure out whether they're worthwhile or not and, um, and, and filter them in exactly the manner that you're describing. How about mastery mindset as it relates to expectations though? We touched before on there needs to be a moderate amount of impatience in order to stretch yourself beyond those difficult points. But do you counsel your athletes to temper that impatience with more of a long-term outlet or outlook, I should say, and an internal dialogue that says, okay, manage expectations because I know if I'm overly impatient, then all I'll lead to lead myself into is like a brick wall of frustration. Yeah. Well, I think it goes back to kind of the mastery versus ego thing is that what kind of outcomes are you measuring success with? How do you measure success? And for a lot of the cases, if you're purely mastery mindset, you're not really looking at those kind of results and those outcomes as benchmarks to say, this is what I did, or this was worth doing. It's more driven of, I just want to get better. All I want to do is, is I want to continue to get better and continue to challenge myself. And so to have to maybe pollute that with expectations for results, I think is maybe a little misguided, mm -hmm. I, would, I would think. Yeah. I mean, I, you certainly need benchmarks to say I'm on the right track and maybe yeah. that's a coach's job as well as to help you, help you do that. But more than anything that, that the mastery mindset is about, I just want to continue to challenge myself to get better just because I love it. Putting it all together, putting a bow on this thing and, um, in some ways making together a summary, if someone was to pull out an index card and write on the top mastery mindset, what things would uh, be listed in bullet fashion on that index card that would then lead them to either check them as it relates to them possessing or being able to grow more of these things. Yeah. I think purpose is, is the first piece that we covered was that your purpose has to be, um, kind of that in, intrinsic motivation, that enthusiasm, that fun and excitement and enjoyment from learning and getting better. The beginner's mind would be the second piece, that humility that comes with, I want to continue to find all the sources of learning as, as I can possibly find. And then immersion would be really, really important pieces. I want to dig in all the way. Uh, I'm all in. Every part of me is devoted towards getting better at this. And finally, maybe Kaizen, long-term right. outlook. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Every day and every way I'm doing anything that, I, anything that I possibly can to try and get better and better. Yeah. So this is a topic, this mastery mindset is a topic that we hit on little threads of it in all these conversations that we've had. And so it's nice to have a second here to really dig into this. And hopefully this is something that you can take a few notes on and, and kind of decide where you're at with your mastery mindset. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll continue to explore other edges, right? Indeed. By the way, and speaking of mastery, perhaps no individual and no organization embodies that more than Kushnet and Titleist. And so now an interesting conversation that we uh, were about to have that your audience too, with the uh, president of Titleist Clubs, Steve Palasek. The place we want to kick off with is giving the audience a uh, introduction to you and basically a day in the life of uh, the <laughs> president of Titleist Clubs. What's the high level look like, your roles and responsibilities, if we're able to look behind the curtain? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's not much of a curtain because anybody's welcome to come and see us anytime. But yeah, you know, it, it's funny. I suppose my job is I've had a few of them here. I suppose my job is really now to provide leadership to the organization. You know, Titus is it's such a cool brand, but it is a business, you know, and, and we're part of the Akushnet company. And the Akushnet company, we kind of break the company up into four divisions, if you will, clubs and balls and gear and foot joy. And um, I'm very fortunate to to be the president of the of the club business. And what I try to do more than anything is, is there's a lot of smart people in this building. I just try to make sure that there's a common vision among them. You know, we, again, the, the having the Titleist brand to be our North Star is, is such a fortunate thing because 
we're pretty well defined. We don't change our vision very often. We don't change our core strategies. We're a golf company, and we're, we're trying to do nothing more than make the best stuff and then help people choose the best among that for their games to honestly help them get better. At the end of the day, that's what we do. And so there's lots of people. There's probably, oh, 700-ish people around the world who work directly on the Titleist Club business. And I find that um, when everybody sees the vision and we've got really good sound strategies that the R&D team and the ops team that makes them and the, and the sales and marketing team, they're really good. And uh, I think when you have good goals set among yourselves that you agree on, then usually good things happen. So I try to really not get too involved. They're all smarter than me at their disciplines. So I try to just make sure that we're all, we have a common vision and we know what we're trying to accomplish and help them do that. What are those touch points to describe and chart that common vision day-to-day interaction with uh, your most direct contacts, your direct reports, and that trickles down or? Yep. Yeah, it's my my kids tease me because I describe what I, I describe to them what what I do in a day, and they said, "Dad, it sounds like you just walk around a lot." <laughs> and that that there's a lot to that, you know. Um, again, I keep coming back to the Titleist brand and, and and what we do. You know, we set a vision back in frankly about 1995 for who we wanted to be when the Titleist Club business started. Uh, I guess you could call it a bit of a resurgence then, and, and we decided. We didn't want to be the biggest golf club company. I don't even know what that means. We decided we just wanted to focus on making really good products for a pretty specific group of golfers that we called a dedicated golfer. It means nothing more. It has nothing to do with skill. It means nothing more than you kind of take your golf seriously and you want to get better and you're willing to invest your time and your money and stuff that will help you do that. And, you know, once we set the vision that we wanted to just overwhelmingly focus on making great products for that audience, things got a whole lot clearer because we we did just that. We focused on product. And and so, yeah, I find myself a lot of times reminding people that we're not chasing money. We're not chasing price points. We're not chasing little teeny weeny market segments. I don't really know what all that means. It, it, it really, when we focus on product, good things happen. And so I find myself doing that a lot. We, we did it this morning, focusing in on, because we've got some cool product introductions. We're right in the midst of, of a big iron launch right now. And, and, and just reminding folks, you know, what it is we're trying to do. And right now we're in this process of, of introducing them to, um, to golfers, but it's also kind of as a huge part of the launch process where, you got to introduce to your to your trade partners. You got to make sure they understand what your products are and what each one does. And then we have this big fitting network around the world that they got to know what the product is because ultimately they've got to help golfers pick the right ones. But I think um, the touch points are nonstop. They're every day, and it's mostly just reminding people who we want to be. And for us, it's pretty clear. Let's chat a little bit on that new and exciting uh, release of some new product in the new yeah. series, the T-Series. So certainly, and that's our audience, that serious golfer that you speak of. And I know there's a lot of excitement and curiosity about it. And I think as someone who kind of watches the brand and who has, you know, supports the brand and for a long time have grown accustomed to seeing that AP2 in my golf bag for 12 years. And I guess maybe, I guess that means there's six iterations of that product. I'm really curious as to when you know that you're going to step away and move on to the next thing, how long before does that process begin? Because it has to be just this massive undertaking from the brand as a whole. So the story of of, from start of iteration of this is what we're going to do to when we're releasing it is, I think, a pretty intriguing story to hear more about. Yeah, that's that's a good one. Okay, so we run we run the business on what we call two year life cycles. Basically, our products are in market for a couple of years. We've thought about one. Frankly, we can't develop products fast enough to significantly supersede the performance of one a year later. 
And three is too long. We just get too itchy. I heard a great quote one time. I think it was the CEO of Pixar said, folks around here, <laughs> they never seem to finish a product. We just release them. And in a lot of ways, I think that's the way R&D goes, too, in that, OK, every every two years we got to sign the painting, guys. There's a, there's a never ending pursuit of performance back in R&D. But, you know, and R and D mean two different things, really. Uh, you know, research is research. Development is, is development. And we need to make sure that, you know, the researchers know I'm, I'm, I may get a little long winded here, but I think it's 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 worth it. We have a research team that's constantly coming up with new platforms, new ideas, new technologies, new materials, and they work very closely in hand with our development teams. And we have a metals team, an irons team, a wedge team, and a putter team specifically to develop each of those four categories. And when we were working on the R part of irons, uh, probably three years ago, we knew we had a technology that that was it's a really cool technology that was too significant to just call this Corey the 722 AP irons. Just didn't think that was appropriate. And and so it was we batted it back and forth for a few months and um and just decided because there was some nerves about when you get a you know branding things is a big deal and and AP two is the most played iron on world on every basically every tour in the world and so the thought of giving up that name and moving on made some people nervous but we just thought that again the technologies in the irons were too significant to just make this sound like an iterative upgrade. And, uh, you know, we'll see. But it, it's it's I, we really like these this new platform. We've basically thinned out faces and, and added some some ball speed. We changed a lot of the changed top line thickness and changed offsets. We just thought there was too much there to to keep the same name. Obviously, Speed is and distance is one of the important pieces that it's one of those metrics that we can measure. So I can go get fit for five different irons and obviously distance is an important one to a lot of consumers. But I know that there's more to the T-Series and that you guys have the 3Ds. And so I was just going to give you an opportunity to educate us a little bit that you've got distance yeah. and dispersion and descent. So three metrics yeah. that are a little bit more important from the fitting perspective. Yeah, I mean, that, that we do, the Iron Team, that's their measuring stick, the three Ds. Distance, dispersion, and descent. That's how we, strictly from a performance, a ball flight perspective, that's how we measure or we try to make our products measure up against its predecessor and other products in the industry. We think those are the three biggies. And it the audience is different for different models, depending on who you're talking with. If you're talking with a tour player, I'm not sure, so sure tour players are all that interested in hitting their irons significantly longer. The top priority there is precision. I need to know that it's going to go the same distance every time. I do what I do. It has to do what it has to do. And so the distance is, is a different discussion based on the model you're talking about. T100, it's about distance precision. And hey, if you if you look at T100, I mean, you can tell right off the bat if you know, looking at specs, just look at the loft spec on a set like T100. It's relatively weak lofted. It's it's not meant for unbridled distance. No, it's it's its target audience wants distance precision, super focus on trajectory, feel, look. But mostly that precision. So, but then you skip to an iron like T three hundred. That audience is a little more looking for distance. So it's a much hotter iron than T one hundred, and it has a totally different loft perspective or progression. So that D means different things in different models. Dispersions, you know, that's that's pretty common across the models. We try to make golf clubs that are, and dispersion is north south and east west. You know, one of the most important things about an iron is it's got to do the same thing every time. And granted, you know, it, 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 so so it, it, 
I was going to say that you know your your lie because you, you got turf involved here it, that that can get difficult. But we try to make a golf club that hey, you put you hit the ball somewhere on that face, we're going to get you pretty much the same result every time, whether it's high or low or toe or heel. We try to get you the you know a a, a nice tight landing pattern because green ain't that big. It's really not. And so, you know, we try to get you super consistency there. And then the last one is a biggie more so in the last two, three years when you talk about angle of descent and think about it, you know, basically every iron shot you're hitting, unless you're bumping out from under a tree or something, you're hitting it to a flag. And we think carry distance is way more important than total distance in an iron shot. And the ball's got to land at a steep enough angle to where it's not going to roll very much. To us, an iron shot that rolls more than 20 feet is probably not a great shot. So, you know, you've got to control your angle of descent. It's pretty easy to make an iron that goes far just by strengthening the lofts. But on the other end, things got to stop. It's got to fall softly and stop. And so we pay real close attention to angle of descent. If you're launch monitor junkie, got to be over 40, 45 to 50 is even better. So again, it's all three of those D's are critically important when not only designing an iron from our perspective, but choosing the one that's right for you. Can I take a step back to a conversation regarding R&D? And maybe it's a two-part question. The first part being, are there multiple projects going on? And if the answer to that is yes, when you're investigating the viability, how do you determine from a develop, continued development perspective how to allocate resources across that to try and see something close to the finish line in order to get ready to, I guess, decide what you're going to bring to the market? Yeah, that's a great, that's the great juggling act. And really, R&D is almost I-R&D. We separate out innovation and research and development. I don't want to get too geeky, but they are kind of different things. And we found that, you know, being innovative, that's hard. And applying creativity in so many ways, we try not to put those, that, and we have people dedicated to all three and people who bounce across all three. It's hard to put innovation on a timeline. So you really need to allow folks to the time to be creative. And then researchers are generally more looking into slightly more specific issues like, you know, a lot of consumer research for how far does ball speeds, angles of attack, you know, um, investigating new materials. Those are slightly more specific things. And then, as I said before, the developers, once we land on an idea that that we think has merit, it's up to them to make it real. As to how many, the resources we put to each of those, it generally comes back to how significant we think the improvement gain is. You know, and it's pretty easy to tell when you've got a, a really, really good idea we very quickly shift resources to the innovation guys and the researchers to see things like, you know, how big can the performance improvement be? How complex would the development process be? It's a very fluid process at that point. But then at some point, you know, you got to, you can, every two years, you got to sign the painting. So um, you do have to switch to development and not almost always, not every project is built into each product. I mean, we've got, we're going through it every day. You know, can we get this one done in time? I suppose that's what makes it fun is, is, um, you know, knowing that not only what we're releasing literally this week in new irons, these are significant performance upgrades from two years ago, but we've got a bunch in the hopper for two years from now. So it's pretty cool. And so what you're describing there is the likely occurrence was the performance upgrades that you guys were forecasting seeing out of the early stage, I guess, design and product from the T-series were so great that it became a single stream of development where all other projects were 
kind of pushed to the side and, and it became uh, all, all uh, engines uh, pushing in one direction. Yes, yes? it did. And, and sort of the big one, the big feature, I guess, in the new T200 and T300 irons, it's a pretty cool invention. I mean, if you think about, if, if, let's just isolate the variable of distance, the, the first D. And in T200 and T300, those are irons that are really kind of meant for players who are looking for more distance out of their irons. The best way, we think, to generate greater ball speed in an iron is to thin the face out and to increase the COR, if you will. There's a limit on COR, but get the COR up. You can generate legitimate speed by fine-tuning that or increasing the COR of an iron. The problem with that is if you go too far, you can imagine your, your iron working, the face of an iron working a bit like a trampoline. If you make the trampoline too thin, you bust right through it. And so how can you govern that? How can the, the challenge was, how can we maximize ball speed off the face of an iron, really, really get close to max COR, but then maintain the integrity of the product so that it's not going to break on you? And that's what max impact technology is. Is It's almost the equivalent of, if you were to think about putting an exercise ball underneath the center of a trampoline, to where it just it keeps it from going too far. And in fact, it, it, the rebound is it pushes back, it pushes up, it spreads ball speed across the face. I don't know if I'm telling this story well here or not. The R&D guys are probably cringing when they <laughs> no, hear this. The picture, the exercise but, ball on the trampoline, clear picture. Yeah, and, 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 and so what it does is it, it really, it, to the best of our ability, it maximizes your ball speed from your swing. And... That's a cool thing, but it's an invention, and, and to figure out how to how to put that in a in a golf club that still has to look good, and sound good, and feel good, it wasn't easy. And so that was, you know, four years in development. Just that little thing right there. Cameron and I are always really excited when we we steal an idea from outside of golf. And when we find something that has nothing to do with golf at all, and we're able to apply it to what we do in a coaching world. And so I'm curious if there are any analogous markets that your innovators are looking towards or looking to and drawing inspiration to what eventually may come into a finished product, a finished club. Yeah, there's lots of them. And it depends on who you talk to back in, again, I'm back in R&D. It depends on who you talk to as to where some of their inspiration comes from. We have, in addition to the metals and irons and wedge and, and putter development teams, we also have an industrial design team that's whose job it is to, to essentially make things look really cool. And they draw inspiration from, my golly, you go back there and the walls are just covered with, with cool products from multiple industries, whether it's sneakers to watches to jewelry to race cars you know there's lots of that i think maybe a little more um a little more engineering like is uh the materials group they're constantly searching for new materials that we might make golf club products out of that's a little bit where our concept line goes because so much of what drives that those products are the materials they get a lot from aerospace so it's 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 there's there's many many examples of that turning over many stones it's been an insightful conversation let's close here with exploring at whatever length you want to how you might personally define success in your role and then uh, collectively as we look at the uh, release of the t-series how we're going to define success of both the launch and also product placement yeah yeah that's that's a really good question. I think, um, well, literally, I suppose success is is defined by achieving goals. I think there's two big parts to that, though. One is achieving the goal. The first is setting the goal. I think it's important to set goals that are meaningful to you and then enjoying the process of going about achieving them. So I, and I think it's really important, whether it's life or business, I don't want to get too deep on you here, but 
but to to have meaningful goals and to enjoy the process of pursuing them. Um, when you really enjoy that, don't just leave all your fun for the end when you achieve it, but try to enjoy the process of pursuing them as well. So you know, that's I, I believe that's how we define success here at Titleist. Again, you know, we've been around since when was the first golf ball? 1935. You know, we've been around a little while and we are we're a golf company. And so, yeah, we're a business and we got to grow and we're a public company and all that stuff. But I think in the end, what's, again, really cool, I think, about Titleist is we do define success based on how golfers perceive our brand and our products. We are really singularly focused on that. You know, there's a, there's, what is it, 50 million golfers in the world. If you ask the, the various federations, it's not a ton, but we kind of focus everything we've got on this seven or eight million-ish or so who, who um, call themselves dedicated golfers. You know, they play a couple times a month. Uh, they love it. Uh, it's their passion, one of their passions. And so it's a fairly easy group to identify and a fairly hard group to please because they, they're pretty sophisticated. And so we, we truly do define success by the feedback we get from those golfers. And I suppose, you know, those seven or eight million dedicated golfers, about half of them play a pro V1. That's success to us, you know, and and if you keep coming back and you have some loyalty toward our brand and our products, that's success to us. And and um, so, yeah, it's it's uh, it's way more than just running a business. You know, it's it's uh, it's about the game of golf and, and the people who play it. And we're really lucky to have that script out there to mean something to a lot of us. And. We just try to uphold that, man. Love it. Well, you've certainly made a habit as a company releasing product of a product out of any of the divisions that is successful. So that habit of being successful is something you live. Appreciate the time talking with us. Can't wait to see you at the next event we cross paths with. We're proud to be associated with uh, you individually, everyone else that we cross paths with. That's part of uh, Kushnet. So thanks again for your time. Way to go, guys. Appreciate all you do and how you do it. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge. <laughs>